0: 1 Samuel 24, I'll read it in its entirety and then we'll go through it. Let me pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word and so grateful to have Andrea with us and Lord, to fellowship in the middle of the week and to be strengthened, Lord, as we always pray, cause us to come alive to your living word and Lord, change us, transform us, inspire us, bless us, strengthen us, convict us, exhort us, whatever's necessary, whatever we need, we're yielded, God. And so have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs. Uh, New Living Translation says he went to relieve himself. Uh, that's kind of the idea, so I just, that's, I just thought that was interesting. The Bible doesn't leave anything out. That was bad too right there, I'm not sure. Uh, a tend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Uh, then the men of David said to him, this is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as may seem good to you. David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe, and now it happened afterward that David's heart was troubled, because, uh, troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying my lord the king and when Saul looked behind him David stooped his face to the earth bowed down and David said to Saul why do you listen to the words of the men who say indeed David seeks your harm look this day your eyes have seen the Lord delivered you into my hand in the cave and someone urged me to kill you but my eye Uh, spared you and I said I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed moreover my father see yes see the corner of your robe in my hand for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you now see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand and I have not sinned against you yet you hunt my life to take it let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you but my hand shall not be against you as the proverb of the ancient says wickedness proceeds from the wicked but my hand shall not be against you after whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue, a dead dog, a flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, In this your, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name for my father's house. And David swore to Saul and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold, which would probably be Masada. Uh, you guys have heard about Masada. It's that mountaintop um, fortress. And um, there's a lot in this passage. Uh, I guess I want to begin by reading a couple more passages before we engage in the study. Proverbs, you can just note these. I'll read them. You can study them at your leisure later. But Proverbs 24:29 it says, Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. The Bible says you don't do that, you don't say that. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17 says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. David wrote Psalm 37 when he was in the cave of Vengeti, actually, probably when he was released, and it says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath Do not fear, fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And then Psalm 7 is uh, reported to have been another one that David wrote from this experiment. It says, um, or this experience, excuse me, O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces where there is none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me, yet let him trample my life to the earth and lay honor to the dust. So David wrote a number of um, Psalms, music, in accordance with this event and this experience that he had uh with Saul. And just to put it into perspective, I've been to Engedi, uh it's beautiful limestone out in the middle of of the probably the lowest point in, in the world. Uh if you go to the Dead Sea, along the road to the Dead Sea is this offshoot to Engedi, and it's a stream that comes through and it's fed from springs. And you, you hike up into it and you see pools up there and it's this lush oasis. It's got beautiful trees and you see a, a myriad of caves or caves. There's a bunch of caves up there. And David was up there hiding with his 600 men. They were all in the cave together. And Saul is pursuing David at the moment. He's pursuing him with not just 3,000 troops, but the scripture says 3,000 like crack troops, uh, appointed troops. These are the, Dev grew six. These are the SEAL team guys. And they are chasing David. They're equipped for, for a wilderness warfare. They almost had him, but we saw the rock of division that David was survived by in the last passages that we looked at. And so David is uh, now hiding in this cave. Saul's still pursuing him and 600 men hiding in the cave. Well, they get to this area, and it's just lovely. And if you've ever been to this area of the world, the sun is so bright, it's almost blinding. Everything is crystal clear. There's seldom a cloud in the sky, even in the middle of winter. Sometimes rains will go through, but the reality is it's always just a, a cloudless sky, bright, bright blue, and this limestone is bright white, and and transitioning. And I watch this oftentimes in this, this back door here on Sunday mornings where I'm sitting up in that little corner waiting to come down and, and I'm putting on my headset and I watch people come through that door and the transition from the bright light outside and then coming into the dark room. I watch people continually, and that's why we've put red tape there, trip or stumble or struggle as they're trying to, and they'll, they'll pause and wait for their eyes to adjust. This is exactly what, what happened to Saul. He had 3,000 men traveling. You can imagine, I, as a youth pastor, I used to drive a 40 passenger bus and I had the class C or B license, passenger endorsement. I'd take these kids to camp and it was a converted city bus, so we didn't have a bathroom on board. It was these funky city seats. They didn't have cushions on them, they were all facing each other. It was just, and, and our pastor bought it because he got a deal on it. And this thing was a lemon. It, it, it had a governor on it, so it never went over 65. And going up the hill, it overheated. The brakes would always fail. It's just a treat. And, uh, and I'd have to take the junior high and then come all the way back from Green Valley, San Jose to Green Valley. And then I'd come back, pick up the high schoolers, go to Santa, uh, Green Valley and back to San Jose. We'd take the coastal route because it was cool because there was no air conditioning on the bus. It was miserable. And every time we stopped, Every time we stop, imagine 40 kids all having to go to the bathroom and it just takes forever. And so, and then you get back on the bus, some kids drinking a Gatorade goes, I got to stop again. You stop. They all want to go in and buy something. I just told every one of the kids while we're driving, you're all eating sunflower seeds. No one touches water. And so they just, you know, their mouths are just like, you know, just salted and and, and I'm, I'm giving them salty food and potato chips and they're just, just so they could barely speak because they're just so dried out. And I, I figured that out. It took me a couple trips, so I figured out how to not. Could you imagine stopping to let 3,000 guys use the restroom? How long that would take? And, and you know, Saul's of royalty, and he doesn't necessarily want to, you know, use the facilities in front of the 3,000 men. And so they, they give him this opportunity to go up into the cave to relieve himself. And he's, he goes into the cave, just like coming in the sanctuary on a bright day where it's dark in here. His eyes don't adjust. He, he takes off his outer robe, and, and he proceeds to relieve himself. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> you know, what he doesn't realize is there's six hundred men in the restroom with him. <laughs> just thought I'd point that out. And six hundred pairs of eyes, unless of course some of them are soldiers, they probably lost an eye, but they're just and and this is what he's he's there doing this. It's a little uncomfortable for everybody. And and David's crawling up in the middle of this and, and everyone's going, Kill him, kill him. And you don't want to talk about a rough way to die. It's like Elvis dying on the toilet. It just you just don't want to die that way. And history's gonna record that, you know, Saul was relieving himself and David stabbed him. David's crawling up. And I just wanna put it into perspective. Saul has committed himself to killing David. He's thrown two spears at him. He's chased him. He's, he's, he's threatened uh, his own son who befriended David. you remember Jonathan found David in the uh, wilderness? And, uh, and, and here, you know, David can all of a sudden be delivered from, from the burden of Saul. All he has to do is just take that knife and stick Saul and it's all good to go, and the 600 men are with him. They're all with him, and they're thrilled. Do it, David. And they, they probably quote some sort of a, uh, of, of a prophecy that someone had given, maybe Abner had given it, that uh, this is the day, behold, I will deliver the enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. We don't know where that comes from. David uh, is, is, hears this quote, may have been some sort of a prophet to do it, and David crawls up, and all of them are saying, kill him, kill him. Let's just stop for a minute. Who appoints all positions of authority? God does. Was David anointed king? In our studies, we understand that Samuel anointed his head with oil, and he says, you're the next king of Israel. And then we also we realize David's life just takes a tumble, and he's, he's now kicked out of the palace, loses his family. His wife that he, he won through the killing of Goliath has been taken from him, married to another. His whole world is upside down. All the priests of Nob are dead. He's feigned madness down in Gath, and he's allowed drool to drip down his beard. Uh, he, he, he doesn't have a friend in the world except for the 600 indebted, distressed, and discontented guys that are with him and their families. And, and his life is miserable. And he's got all of these responsibilities as he meant and he has no resources to accomplish anything and he's having to live in the wilderness and Saul took it all from him. Saul took it all from him. But David, long before he was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel, long before uh, he killed Goliath, David was a psalmist, the sweet psalmist of Israel tending to the sheep, the least in his father's estimation, out in the fields, uh, a shepherd's job, which was the lowest form in all of Israel. It meant that you were unclean. He's out there. Even when Samuel called for the sons, uh, Jesse ignored David and said, well, there's one more, but he's the least in my estimation. You don't even want to waste time with him. And David, all alone out in the wilderness, playing music to the Lord, he, he slew the lion, he slew the bear. He saw God's faithfulness. God instilled this in him. He had a love for God's word. He would memorize it. He would write songs pertaining to it. He reflected on the character and the nature of God. He, he penned uh, psalms today that resonate even in cultures all around the world. Uh, some of the best music we have is anything that anyone's written. It's just the psalms that they've put to music and people are blown away by them. And this is David. David has a love for the word of God. And if he had killed Saul in the cave, he would have given every man in the government the right to kill David when they didn't agree with him. Had he killed Saul in the cave, he would have given every man the right to break the word of God when they didn't feel like they wanted to obey it. Had David killed Saul, he would have set an example and a precedent that the, the word of God takes a backseat to your emotions. And David, in the wisdom of this, understood it. He would, he, would, he would transfer this wisdom to Solomon. Solomon would write it down. David lived it, earned it, and taught it. Saul or Solomon received it, but never lived it. Wrote it, but never lived it. And all of the wisdom that Solomon received to write, David lived and, 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 and uh, acquired. Solomon mentally understood it, but never lived it, but wrote about it. And so David right now is, is getting a, a, a big exam. This is a major class to get your BSD degree, the backside of the desert. God is taking the Saul out of David so that he can put Christ in David. Saul is making, or excuse me, God is making David a king that is worthy to rule a kingdom because he's a man after God's own heart. And and vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so as we've read in Psalm 37 and Psalm 7, and we've seen in Proverbs 24, David David wrote those Psalms. He also, you know, he he didn't read Proverbs because Solomon wrote it, but he he instilled that in Solomon because he learned it. And, and, as, and as all of this is coming to pass and, and maybe one of the prophets had so, spoken to Samuel or, or maybe it was Gad who had spoken the, these words that, that God will deliver your enemy into your hands. We don't know where it comes from. Um, but David, David's men are thinking to themselves, today is a day to strike. This is justice. And, and David saw it. And as David crawls towards, towards Saul, David sees the opportunity, not for justice, but to extend, listen because this is a word that we struggle with. He doesn't extend justice. He extends grace and mercy. David would write that mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes. We would see in, in the Beatitudes that Jesus would declare on the, on the Mount of Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, he'd say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. Mercy. David, I like what one author writes. He says, David did something that must have seemed funny at the time. While Saul was preoccupied, David crept up and cut off a corner of his robe. But it was wrong to do it. Afterward, David uh, was conscience stricken for having cut off the corner of of his robe. And he says, here's the explanation to his own men in verse 6. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he's anointed of the Lord. And this author writes, it was wrong because it made the king look bad. It was wrong because it showed a lack of respect. It was wrong because it wasn't David's place to get even. It was wrong because cutting his robe was the first step to murder. It was wrong because Saul was still the Lord's anointed. Cutting off a corner of the royal robe was an act of physical and spiritual vandalism. It was an act upon Saul and on Saul's right to be king. Now granted, it's not the Lord's anointed because we also know that in 1 Samuel 15, when, when Saul had disobeyed God and, and, and Samuel said to Saul, the kingdom will be removed from you, Saul said no and he reached out and grabbed Samuel's robe. The robe tore and, and Samuel said to Saul, as the robe is torn from your hand, so will the kingdom be taken from you and given to another, a man after God's own heart. And you can imagine as the corner of this robe is missing how it just reinstigates into, into Saul's mind uh, everything that, that, that Samuel had said to him. It was probably just a little overwhelming uh, to, to Saul at the time. One of the things that we see here as well is... Um, when the Scripture says, "The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord," so David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went his way. You can hear him all just go, "What are you doing? What? what are you? Kill him! I'll kill him! Get out! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it!" And, and, and Saul's ears are facing outward, so he's hearing the noise of, of his men, and he doesn't hear the whispering in the back of the cave because his ears are faced this way. And he's hearing the noise of his men, he doesn't hear the noise behind. But David is just telling him to be quiet. They're saying, Why are you doing this? And David looks at him and he says, you, you just tell everyone, go all the way back. It is not my place to attack the Lord's anointed. <laughs> He gets up, puts his robe back on, walks out. Now, this verse to me is one of the funkiest verses in the ministry. Um, I, I, I one of my favorite Bible teachers, um, Joe Foch in Philadelphia, he talks about um, on a Wednesday night, it was the only Wednesday night of the year that he didn't, he wasn't teaching. He, he, never, he seldom misses a Wednesday night. It was the only Wednesday night of the year that he wasn't teaching, he was somewhere else. And that night, this prophet, you know, self-appointed prophet comes in to read Joe the riot act and and prophesy against him. And as he comes in to prophesy, and he's just walking down the aisle in the middle of the service, the, you know, the guys come in and grab him, and he's, in, and he's screaming all the way down the aisles, they're removing him, and they're saying, don't touch the Lord's anointed, do not touch the Lord's anointed, and they're carrying him out. Oftentimes, you hear this verse quoted by folks that are uh, self-proclaimed prophets, and uh, they are, they're, the, the, it's, it's, it's their clarion call to not touch me and give me freedom to be a wacko. And they really, you know, they come in with a tinfoil hat and looking for the helicopters flying over, I don't know. But, but as they took him outside, the guys grabbed him and they said, well, first of all, if you're a prophet, you should have known that Joe wasn't going to be here tonight. <laughs> And they said, second, this is a non-profit organization, so don't ever come back." I, I've I've heard this from people who are 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 justifying bad behavior and and using this verse to say, "Don't come near me." I, I if you ever hear me use this word in relation to myself, find a new church. Okay? I've heard people apply it to me in prayer, and I'm not, I'm not insulted by it. I think it's sweet in some respects, but I, I in no way uh, feel entitled. And, and if I ever apply that in talking to you, that, that somehow you're attacking me and you don't touch the Lord's anointed, I want you to hear me clearly and tell everyone in the church this. It's time to find a new church. Okay? You guys got that? And if you ever hear another person use that in relation to themselves, turn off the TV. Okay? It, 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 did David ever use that in relation to himself? And by the way, we're we're talking about a wayward king who who is he's in trouble. And David already knew that, that Samuel had spoken of the robe being ripped and, it, and David still had massive respect for him. What does the Bible say that we're clothed with when we receive Christ? Clothed with his righteousness. And you know what's amazing when you listen to talk radio and you listen to all the movie critics and the critics on radio? And you'll hear the president's speech and then the critics will come on and they'll just start tearing them apart. And It's one thing to deal with the policies of an individual but to start to attack their character. Yeah, I learned this in the campaign. Let me just tell you what happens in our community. When you label somebody an extremist, like me, I was labeled an extremist, that means that the 50,000 people that voted for me have voted for an extremist. How does that make them feel that you labeled the person that they wanted to vote for? That not only they are extremists, and not only is a candidate extremist, but those who voted for them are. And that's almost 50% of the you know populace. In addition, when you attack them in an, a myriad of ways where you attack their character and label them in some capacity, what it does is it reduces the voter turnout because people just don't want to participate anymore because it's so ugly, and they justify by saying it's politics. I would never allow any material to go out against my opponent that attacked her character. I wouldn't allow a, sp- a, a, a scandalous picture or, or an ugly picture of her. They always wanted to get it. they they'll always send it from Sacramento and they'd have a picture and it was awful. Her mouth was open or, and I said, you put a picture of her as though, I want you to treat her as though she were my wife. I want you to find the prettiest picture you can find of her and put it out there. And they're saying, you're advertising for her. No, I'm appealing to her people. If I have to win this way, we're destroying the field. It, it's not an issue between the two of us. We're representing a community. If I'm attacking her, I'm attacking the people that care about her. I know what that's like because I've had our folks attack that way. And you don't render evil for evil. And until we understand that as a community and we continue to tolerate it, See, when, when, you get, when you see somebody attacked or you see these things happen, first of all, you gotta, it's water off a duck's back. I'm not personally insulted, I'm not embittered, and I'm not angry. There's no room for it. David didn't take it personally in the sense that he, he didn't want vengeance. You want to talk about a lousy ad going out. David's name had been maligned in all the kingdom. And the minute he gets a chance to get him back and ascend to the position of power, He's even burdened by cutting off a corner of the robe, trying to to depict the prophecy that Samuel had said to him. That burdened him. And you walk around with an arrogance saying, don't touch the Lord's anointed. Nobody wants anything to do with you. But if you're somebody who has that respect that you, listen, when you start to pick people in the congregation or you attack pastors or you attack churches, there are folks in this community that cycle through churches You change churches like you change clothes. And everywhere you leave, you come here and you come and you'll talk to me about this pastor and this pastor and this pastor and this pastor. And all I have to say to you is every time you're doing that, you're cutting off a corner of the robe and you're just making everybody look naked. And you're attacking a cloak of righteousness. I'm sure they have issues. But Matthew 18 is given to us so that we can endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and reconcile and win a brother. And oftentimes, if people come to me and they start talking smack about a pastor, I'll say, you know, I know that pastor pretty well. And I say, just stop what you're saying. I'm going to call him up, and I'm going to tell him that you want to have a meeting with him so you can address those issues. And I'll go with you. And immediately go, I don't want to do that. I mean, that's not anything I was really planning on doing, but I just... Well, then then you need to stop talking about them if you're not going to reconcile with them. Shut it down. And quite frankly, there are pastors I, I probably struggle with. I do. And, and, and when we get to the end of this chapter, there's an application tonight that all of us are going to have to apply, and I, I, I'm not happy about it, quite frankly, personally. And, and one of the reasons when Brett and I sat in that meeting with the pastors, and they were just stone silent, the minute we left, the first thing the two of us said to each other is that the problem in that room is it's interpersonal relationships, and we've got to mend those. And 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 I would just say I'm not responsible for the actions of another person, but I am responsible for my reaction. And if and if you don't own that and you don't operate in that context, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And and David reflects this to the 600 men. You know what's amazing? All those things I listed about what would have happened when David sets this example to the 600 men. Don't forget that when they were. They were in the cave of Adullam. Do you remember after the election we talked about the cave of Adullam? And, and David wanted to be alone after the failure of his life. And then his family joined him in the cave. He's like, I want to be alone. <laughs> and then immediately following his family were all the people that were indebted, distressed, and discontented. Because Saul's government caused them to be indebted, discontented, and distressed. And they go out into the wilderness and they join David. And what did they talk about in the cave of Adullam? politics. That's all they talked about. Those 600 men would later be the government of the largest expanse of the government of Israel in the the history of the nation. And now what are these 600 men learning about government? You don't ascend to power by killing the person that's there. Any donkey can knock down a barn door. Let me correct that. Any jackass can knock down a barn door, but only a carpenter can build one. Tell everybody why you're better and that person's a loser. And all you're doing is ruining the foundation that was laid. David pointed out in Psalm 37, don't fret the evildoer. God will take care of it. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. David knew, if I'm going to ascend to the throne, first of all, if God anointed it, then God's got to get it done. And and I, I don't have to worry about that. And that was one of the things, I, when the election was over, I wasn't burdened. We did everything we could have possibly have done. It didn't work out that way. And, and secondly, for the folks that had gone through that with us, and they were in the cave of Adullam with us, one of the things we had to share with them is there's, there's a joy. God's still on the throne. He, didn't, he wasn't going, oh, my goodness, I fell asleep Tuesday. I didn't realize. My bad. Amen? Amen. And instead of going, why God? Our response had to be, God, what do you want us to learn from this? What do you want us to glean from this? What are you trying to show us? God, you're, th- you're sovereign. Be anxious in nothing. Where do you want to go from here, Lord? And, and so David is setting an example for 600. He's not just, he's not just doing what God's called him to do. He's setting an example. Every one of these guys, when they saw that, they're like, are you kidding me? And it, and it takes a pretty strong man to tell 600 guys to be quiet. And those 600 men witnessed a young boy walk out into the, in the valley of Elah and take off the head of a 9-foot, 10-inch giant. Because David earlier on was studying God's word and stood upon it and took, killed the lion and killed the bear. And every one of those guys at one point or another was paralyzed for the 40 days when Goliath mocked them. And David walked out as though it was nothing. And, and when Goliath ran at him, David ran at Goliath. And these are going, he is one bad dude. And he's got his ups and his downs, but every time he just seems to come through this and learn a lesson from it. And all and, and some of the NCOs and non-commissioned officers in David's 600-band army are turning and just going, shut up! If David said to do it, you do it! And be quiet! And it, and it's amazing, the strength of a, of a military is only as strong as its NCOs, its non-commissioned officers. And David had the hearts of these guys. Abishai was one who struggled, but when David said, don't do it, Abishai backed off. Even when he would catch Saul sleeping and, and get past you know, Abner and get up there to go stick Saul. David said no, and Abishai said, then I'll do it. And he goes, no. And Abishai, you know, just sheathed his sword and followed David. What are we doing? That's leadership. I've often said this. The strength of a man or the strength of a woman is measured by the power you possess that you don't, that you don't use. Again, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, was it the nails that held him to the cross? He was God, right? Nails don 't hold God. He had power, and the strength of a man is measured by the power he possesses that he doesn't use when they were spitting on him and mocking him. He had a greater purpose in mind. Guys, this may mean that we've got you know th- three more months of bad weather I don't know that may you know because we're going to see our shadowing I don't know, but this may mean that we're going to be chased by Saul. It may mean that we 're all going to die, but I'm not doing this. Honoring God's word is far more important than me ascending a throne. Don't forget that. You get burdened in your workplace because you got passed over. Calm down. God gave you the boss that you need. Listen. Now, if if you're asked to do something immoral, that's different, but but if, if it's just hard, and we were studying out of Ephesians 5 when it says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children. And one of the pictures I share with them is you have a 75%, actually an 80% attrition rate of all of the top-notch sailors in the United States Navy that go into SEAL team training, 80% of them drop out, 20% of them succeed. And of the 20% that succeed, if they want to move on to DevGrew, which is SEAL team six, the 20% are taken to go into DevGrew and only 50% of those make it. So the top of the top, only 50% make it. What does that mean? That means that the guys that get through, the 20% that get through and and the 50% that get through over here, those are guys, and this is a common denominator, and this is what they say. I'm not going to quit. Quitting is not an option. I'm either going to die trying or they're going to kick me out. And they have to watch it because they'll, they'll do a certain mile swim. They have sensors on them. They're going to the edge of hypothermia. A lot of the guys, when they're doing underwater swims, they have to pull them out because they've stopped breathing. They have to resuscitate them. They keep going. These are guys, I'll die. I'll either die or you'll kick me out, but I'm not quitting. And That's what they're looking for. But listen, dads and moms... That's perfect if you want to develop a DevGrew SEAL Team 6 child. But don't forget that there's 80% of them that failed because the requirements were too tough. And they took the helmet they were wearing with your name on it, their father's name, and they laid it down and they walked away because they were exasperated and overwhelmed. And the Bible says, raise a child in the way that they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart thereof. You're supposed to understand their bend and the way they're made and you exasperate them and put impossible terms on them, they're going to put the helmet down with your name on it and walk away. I'm not going to be part of your army. You want me to achieve some sort of a dream you never realized, and you want me to live it for you. And you lay those unreasonable expectations down on them, and they're going to quit. David never asked his men to do something he himself was not willing to do. And they knew the odds when they came out there. And those men respected David, and and he wasn't pushing them beyond any of their abilities. He was teaching them, I want to show you to trust in the Lord. And so when David cuts off the corner of it, then they also see another side of David. They see a broken and contrite heart, which God does not despise. And in the brokenness, David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, verse 8, saying, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. Humility. You think Saul was in a, a compromised position. David's on his face. He can't even see if the enemy's coming. He's bowing down. He's talking. Just with his face up enough so that, so that uh, Saul can hear the words. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, indeed, David seeks you harm? And he goes on to describe, I had the chance to kill you and I didn't. I wouldn't lay my hand against the Lord and Lord's anointed. And then he calls him my father. You know why? Because that's his father-in-law. He goes, dad, I can invoke that name to you. Sometimes your kids come to you and you want to be king and they just want to call you dad. Be tender. Don't exasperate them. He says, Father, see, the corner of your robe is in my hand for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know that there's neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. I've not sinned against you. Now I did cut off the corner of his robe and, and he, he was sickened by it. And kids, I, I'll talk to you. You can cut your parents down and talk about how bad they are, and, but they, they put them into your life. And, and you go on into Ephesians 6, and, and the command is obey your mother and father, will go well with you, live long on the earth. You may have a Saul as a parent. Obey him. Do like David. I think there's a lesson for parents in here and kids. You learn how to obey your parents, even if they're exasperating in some capacity you learn how to obey him, you're not going to have any problem in life. The Bible says it'll go, it's the only commandment with a promise. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. You'll be an amazing employee. You'll be an amazing boss. You'll be an amazing student. You'll be an amazing military personnel. You'll be an amazing father. You'll be an amazing grandpa or grandma or wife or husband. All because you learned how to obey. Because if you can learn how to obey a a flawed parent, you'll have no problem obeying a godly, or God, your father. Now, listen, kids, I'm not asking you to obey your parents when they ask you to do something immoral. You don't have to obey them if they're beating you. You don't have to obey them if they, that's, that's not what I'm saying. It may be difficult, but you like the SEAL team, guys, you just say, well, you're either going to kick me out of the house because I'm going to do the best I can, or I'm going to die trying but I'm not leaving. You're gonna have to ask me to leave because I don't live up to your standards. but I'm gonna try the best I can. I'm gonna do my best to obey you with everything I have. And somewhere in there, you're gonna find what God wants to do in your life. He goes on to say, um, you hunt my life to take it, in verse 12, let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. He's just saying, I'm not gonna kill you. And he's standing there and he's open to death because the 3,000 men can come and get him at any moment. And and David has put all six hundred men, but David is putting them all in the hands of the Lord and all of them are going, We're we're done. And they're all pulling out their swords, going, Well, this is this is the Alamo fellas. And they're up in this cave. And you know, if you go to Engedi, there are hundreds of caves. Do you think God brought Saul to the right cave? <laughs> yes. David's like, Of all the caves, of all the caves, he had to come in here. <laughs> I remember one time when and, and it convicted me and I I stopped doing these kind of practical pranks. I was in college and uh, we were in the mess hall or the dining hall of Fresno State and we were at the athletes' tables and I went over to some of the other tables and I, they have those sugar dispensers with the large lid on it and I took the lid off and I put the napkin over and I turned it over. I slid the napkin out and I took the lid back on so it looked like it was over again. So you pick it up go, all the sugar would go out. And I'm like, eh, this is going to be fun. And we're watching. What are the odds? The only blind student in the school with a seeing eye dog sits at that table, sits in that seat, has coffee and wants to put sugar in it. I just walked away going, I am the biggest loser on the planet. Went all over a dog and I, I walked over, helped clean it up, I apologized. It was just awful. And, and that was the Lord teaching me early on, that's not funny. Humor at somebody else's expense is not funny. And uh, it was, you know, and that's, that's David going, what are the odds? Uh, I, I'm gonna get to the close here because this to me is so Amazing. Um, Saul after David lays out this idea of who do you pursue a dead dog a flea verse 15 therefore let the Lord judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand after he finishes that verse 16 so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said is this your voice my son David and Saul lifted up his voice and wept now whether he was sincere or not we don't know but Saul was on the verge of repentance to the point where he was teary-eyed, weeping. The, the idea and he wasn't crying, he was weeping, he was sobbing. I've had people in my office sobbing. They were on the brink. I remember one guy uh, in particular, uh, it, was, um, it was coming up to the Christmas season, and I'd gotten... A letter, he worked in Hollywood, and I got a letter from another co producer that he worked with, and this letter was talking about how generous the member of our church was and how he you know looked out for the needy and what he did in the, on the lot in Hollywood and all these things and how they were struggling he was always giving it. and it was one of the most amazing letters I was touched by it and immediately I went and shared that with uh, uh, Eric Smith who was one of the guys on staff at the time and we were so moved by the letter emotionally that we wrote a check to their family for Christmas because we didn't realize of the need and they were overjoyed and, and he, the guy got the check he was weeping I was just blown away by it and um and as we proceeded on through the course of time, I began to realize that this guy's not who he portrays himself to be. And I was driving in on Lynn Road getting ready to go over to the skyline. And as I'm driving, the Lord whispers and the Lord just basically says that letter, he wrote it himself, about himself. And that person doesn't exist, so I did a search, didn't find the person, and I just, I was grieved. I came in, as I'm walking in, Eric Smith comes up, he says, the Lord spoke to me and told me that that letter so-and-so had written it about himself. I'm like, I know, God told me too. And sure enough, uh, I confronted this guy. I laid out everything he'd lied about. I'd, I'd, laid out a, I'd laid it all out there. Matthew 18, I approached him. I had the witnesses. I laid it out. And there was nowhere to run. And he would put this out, and I'd put that there. And then, but then, and then this would be revealed. And there was nowhere to go. He was fenced in by all honesty. And, and immediately, he starts to just melt down in front of me. He's weeping. He starts to share some deep aspects about his life. He says, I don't know who I am anymore. And he's, he's coming to this place of, of honesty and it's fascinating, and I'm watching, and my heart is just overjoyed. You know, God desires a broken and contrite heart, and I'm I'm longing for Him to come to this place because God's ready to minister to Him. And then fear envelops Him, and shortly after that, He quits and brings a lawsuit, and you know, or not a lawsuit, but He you know, he just does awful things, and it, it's just terrible. And He divorces his wife and fights for custody. It's just it was pathetic, and it was almost like a Saul. The, Saul had come to a place where you know, the spirit of the Lord had departed from him, but, but he was, he, David confronted him, and now he's face-to-face, face, and all these men realize it. They're looking at David holding up this piece of Saul's robe, and they're going, he could have just stuck it to you, David, and we know Saul. I mean, we know David. We didn't want to mess with David. He killed Goliath. There's 3,000 going, if Saul's dead, we're all thrilled because everyone's indebted, distressed, and discontented, and some of our relatives are up in that cave. And Saul just begins to weep. He says, I've played the fool and I've erred You know, exceedingly later on. He says that. He says, you're more righteous than I if you've rewarded me with good whereas I've rewarded you with evil and you have shown me this day how you've dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you didn't kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done. Your enemies do good to you. <laughs> Saul is proclaiming good to David. And now indeed I know that you shall surely be king. He testifies in front of 3,000 soldiers that, that David's gonna be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. He'd already promised that to Jonathan a long time ago. That was, a, that was simple for David. But I wanna, I wanna close with one last thought. In the remaining minutes, Matthew 18, dealing with a sinning brother, verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So so David approached Saul. Go to him, the person who sinned against you, go to him, tell him your fault. You and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, Take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. We'll do business together, but we don't have any connection. I don't have a love for you. I mean, I, I, there's, it's just business right now. I gotta pay taxes. I don't like it, but I will. And you know... If, if I've got a, a Muslim heart surgeon who's done 1,000 heart surgeries and I've got a Christian heart surgeon that's done two surgeries, I'm gonna go with the Muslim. It's, it's just, he's a heathen, but it's business. I mean, you're gifted. And they're all successful and you're written up in every magazine. I'm gonna go with you. I don't ask if you're a Christian plumber or a Muslim plumber. It's just business. I'm gonna deal with the taxpayer the same way I'll deal with the heathen. A non-believer is business. And, and when you're in business, you only do business with people you trust right? So you can forgive. And forgiveness doesn't mean trusting. Forgiveness means taking the consequences of somebody else's actions and putting them in the hands of God. And then your reaction is to let God handle it. You can't forget. We don't have the ability to forget. The Bible says, bear fruit in accordance with repentance, so if, if you have a wife who's been beaten by her husband, and he says, I swear to God, I'll never do it again. I love you, dear. I love you. I love you. I'll never do it again. He sobers up, and she believes in the next night. And then he's saying, I'll never do it again. I swear, I swear, I swear, I swear, I swear. I love you. He sobers up. Finally, you pack your bags. You leave. He says, I've given my heart to Christ. I'm sure you have. I've forgiven you. But I'm not coming back until you bear fruit in accordance with repentance. How do you bear fruit? Honesty, truthfulness. What are the fruits of spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, (laughs) self-control. What does David do after Saul lays his heart out there? It says, verse 22, so David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went where? They went to the stronghold. I don't trust that guy any farther than I can throw him. Trust is built with truthfulness and truthfulness over time. I've forgiven you. The consequences of what you've done are in the hands of God. I'm gonna go to bed. I'm I'm not... I'm not seeking vengeance. I don't want to stab you. I don't want to kill you. You're in the hands of God. You're responsible for your actions, but my reactions belong to the Lord. And and uh, I I am putting the consequences of your. I'm just going to calm down, and my hands are in the Lord, and I'm going to rest. And I got news for you: if you're going to want to go into business or you want to come back here, you need to bear fruit in accordance with repentance. And when we see the fruits of the Spirit—love, joy, patience, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness—we start seeing those, and then we're going to take little steps. But right now, I'm going up to the stronghold. I'm not following you. I'm not embracing you. I'm not going into business with you. I'm not coming back to your kingdom to have them give me some sort of a, I know you, saw you, I've watched you. you. I was playing a harp. I loved you, and you threw a spear at me. I stayed there and continued to play, and your, your heart was soothed, and you said these same words, and then you threw another spear at me. You are volatile. You, your spirit is un, uh, unyielded to the Lord. You are a mess, and you you are you're you're in the hands of the lord i'm going up to the stronghold god will deal with you and when the time comes if you've repented then we can do it together i don't know but i'm going to the stronghold and i got news if there's a a wife in this room that's got issues with her husband and 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 you're in danger leave go to the stronghold If there's somebody in here that's got an an employer that or a partner, a business partner that's stealing from you and lying to you. Leave. Get a lawyer up. Go to the stronghold. The the idea of like well, you know, can't sue another brother. If they don't agree to Matthew 18 and there's not a brokenness to it and they're not bearing fruit in accordance with the penance and owning up to what they're doing, lawyer up. Well, should I get a Christian attorney? Get a vicious Jewish attorney tax collector and heathen, do whatever you gotta do and go for it. Or an Armenian attorney, amen? Amen. I'll close with this. You know, when Matthew 18 deals with how to deal with a wayward brother and says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone so you can win your brother and then you, you you give all those those areas that they try to escape and you just build the fence of truth with witnesses and then the church and they testify that these people are legitimate and these people are legitimate and you just got this fence where there's nowhere to run you're 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 face to face with the truth and and i endeavor with brothers and i know they're lying to me i'm sitting with them and i know they're lying to me and and i'm just saying well praise the lord you know and you, your sins will find you out and I just I just want you to be able to walk in the light as he is in the light, confess your sins one to another, not unto salvation, but unto restoration. I just don't want you to have to live in darkness because it's like whack-a-mole. You're just always trying to cover your tracks. And I just want you to have peace. And lying is just not fun. It's awful. The, the way of the transgressor is hard. And and to live in that world and your mind is getting torn apart and the insanity that comes with it, I just want you free, brother. And you'll come back around, your sins will find you. And sure enough, they do, and you just give it time and it reveals itself. And as as Jesus goes through this whole picture of dealing with a wayward brother and how to win them back, he then finishes in verse 17 with a picture, but then he goes into this, this telling aspect. In verse 21, Peter hears this, and he's like, whoa, that's heavy. And then Peter says in verse 21 of, of Matthew 18, he says, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? And, and, and I, I, often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him up to seven times? I mean, how often do I have to do this? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but I say 70 times seven. So you're like, okay, so much no, for each offense. Oh, I, not talking Basically, he's saying, you just don't stop, Peter. And, and he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one had brought with him who owed 10,000 talents, millions of dollars, couldn't pay it off in five lifetimes. But he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, master, have patience with me. I'll pay you all he couldn't have. He probably believed what he was saying, but had no ability to do it. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion. That's how you know that you want to engage. You're moved by compassion. He released him, forgave him his debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, "Pay me what you owe me." A hundred denarii is, you know, next to nothing, a few bucks. He's been forgiven ten million, and he wants a few bucks, and he's strangling the guy to get it. And he begged him, saying, "Have patience with me; I will pay you all." And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. And so, when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master. And and as the passage goes on. Uh, what had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. You know, he owed him, you know, 10,000 talents. He owed him millions of dollars. He never called him wicked then. He only called him wicked when he didn't forgive him. I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. Christianity is the only religion in the world God does not tolerate unforgiveness in the life of his kids. Ever. Here's the application tonight. I got my own name. Actually, names. Names. In the quietness of the room, well, let's just do this. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Quietness in the room. It's not gonna take but a moment. It'll just snap right to the front of your memory. Who is it? Who are you harboring bitterness and anger towards? They may be sitting next to you. I don't know. They may be in this room. They may be in this community. You may have not have spoken to them for Years. Who is it? You heard the parable. God, God doesn't tolerate that in the life of his kids. And as that name is in the forefront or those names are in the forefront of your mind, here's a simple prayer. It's gonna help us all tonight to lay down our burden. Quietly in your own heart, I'm gonna say these words, but you just repeat them quietly in your heart. You don't have to utter them with your mouth. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I thank you that Jesus Christ took my sins when he didn't deserve them. I confess to you that I am resentful toward, quietly put in the name in your mind, or towards. Even though Jesus Christ died for my sins, I am angry because of what this person has done. Father, I ask you to do what you think is best in this situation. Please forgive me for harboring anger and bitterness. Set me free from this bondage and please keep me from it for the rest of my life. Teach me to forgive as Jesus did. I pray this in the name of Jesus who forgave me all my sins. Now, Lord, hear us as we pray. And for all of you tonight, I ask that the healing would begin at this very moment. God, forgive us for our many excuses and rationalizations. Lord, go down deep. Expose the taproot of that bitterness within us. Thank you, Jesus. You showed us how to respond when we're unfairly accused, when we've been wronged. You were lamb silent to the slaughter. You didn't render evil for evil. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You've given us the power to overcome the temptation for revenge. Lord, may a revival of love and forgiveness sweep through us tonight. May it begin right here in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.